Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. I am Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler, buddy. What's up? Wednesday night. Hump day. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wednesday night, man. We Well, you've made it to the middle of the week. I haven't been working this week on a paternity leave as my wonderful wife heads back to work for this school year. <laughs> so, But let me just say, taking care of a five-month-old is just as work, if not more work, than my usual job. So I'll say that, man. I hear you, buddy. And, and, and buddy, we have an absolute treat tonight, man. Brett Ciancia from Pick 6 Previews joins us. All right. Bring your bread on now. Brett, how are you doing this evening? Hey, Brian and Curtis. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's the best time of year right now. Everyone's undefeated. Optimism is running high, and uh, I'm excited to break down the 2021 season for you. Yeah, we, we're, uh, we're probably uh, more optimistic right now than we'll be at any point of the season, especially – kind of how last season shook out for us and, you know, some of the attrition we've had here or there. So, you know, we're, we're feeling as good as we will probably feel, but l- l- let's see how this goes, man. Um, before we go like into anything with the previews though, um, wanted to talk a little bit about pick six previews and what this is all about and kind of how you got into this. Um, so like the, the big question I have is like, I know that, you know, there's been, Long established publications like Athlon, Lindy's, Feel Steel. Um, you kind of got into this game in 2012. What was it like kind of getting into that space as kind of the underdog and now, you know, having your publication being the most accurate in terms of the, the, the Power Five level? Yeah, absolutely. Well, back in 2012, I launched Pick Six Previews with my former co founder, Mike Nawaziat. And uh, our claim to fame right away was that we won the accuracy title in 2012. Our Power 5 predictions were graded the most accurate in the country that year, according to Stassen.com, who's graded all these publications for decades. Um, so it was a one-year wonder, but then we backed it up again in 13 and again in 14. And here we are now. Uh, it's my 10th straight year doing it. And the first nine have been graded number one uh, over that time frame. So, um, you know, and this is a one-man operation now. So um, it's just me. Um, going up against the big companies, the legacy brands like uh, Athlon and Sports Illustrated and Lindy's and uh, Phil Steele. Uh, so to, to be able to go toe-to-toe with them and beat them all in accuracy, is, uh, you know, that's been the, the claim to fame. Uh, but, of course, it really grew through Twitter. That's kind of the perfect medium for me to get across my graphics, my information, uh, my stats, and my opinions. Um, and it really has grown organically. So it's been a great movement over on Twitter uh, for years now. So. And then, uh, and lastly, I took it one step further, put together a full book, uh, you know, an instant download a PDF about 200 pages long in 2019 was the first time I put that together and sold it. Um, and that book kind of made the rounds around the media circles. And uh, I was invited to become a Heisman voter uh, in 2019. So the ultimate honor there. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an honor. So uh, here we are now the 10th year. And I'll say that it's definitely the hardest of all 10 having to go through the inconsistencies of 2020, you know, some teams played four games, some played 12. Uh, you had opt-outs, you had transfers, you had quarantines. As you guys know, Virginia Tech, just uh, a lot of quarantine time where certain rosters are hit worse than others at certain times. Uh, and then, of course, 2021 brings this transfer portal boom where the rosters are all shook, shook up like never before. So uh, this was the hardest one ever. But, um, 
And real quick, though, what makes mine a little bit different than the ones you see on newsstands is, I think, balance. I, re I really try and strike a balance between my numbers. I have all my analytics and graphics on the left side of the page, uh, but really putting it back into readable terms that football fans want to read about. Because uh, it's boring to read about, you know, uh, Nebraska was .125 in X metric. Okay, what's that even mean? So uh, I, I call head coaches and coordinators and beat writers and try and get the storylines and the coaching schemes and the program histories all in there. So uh, I really go for the balance aspect of it. Yeah, we picked it up, you know, obviously when we, we invited you to come on, we picked it up, started reading through it. I, I'm, I'm not even 20 page into it yet. It is that much information, is that much detail. So – Brian, you can attest this with me because we were both looking through it yesterday as we were getting ready for tonight. It is so much information. It is – Brett, you do an unbelievable job, man. Kudos to you. Um, for, for, for the guys out there listening tonight and folks who are listening in the morning on the podcast, literally, it will be the best 20 bucks. That is the right price, right? 18. Uh, yeah, 18. <laughs> oh, look. I'm, <laughs> A little discount. Special. <laughs> corner discount, $18. And for all you guys who are not only just Virginia Tech fans, but so many of the college football fans out there, Brett, it's not usually just one game a week. I'm usually sitting in here from noon to two in the morning. We're recording late nights. We're watching Pac-12s. It is, it's unbelievable, man. And you know, kudos to you putting together. And now even more kudos with how accurate you are. Yeah, well, thanks. That's that's music to my ears because that was really the goal of the book. Um, you know. Picture yourself back in the 2010, uh, 2012 area when, when I launched this thing. Um, I was getting tired of just hearing about the same handful of teams. When you turn on the TV or pick up a Sports Illustrated, it was the same handful of programs. It was surface level. It was not in-depth. It wasn't actual X's and O's. It was drama. So what I wanted to do was dig into all 66 of these programs, go super deep. I mean, talking every position group, X's and O's, coaching schemes. Um, and what makes mine a little different, too, is I bring in all that history I have, uh, you know, not just five and ten year trends, but fifty year trends, hundred year trends, everything. Um, you can, you know, the goal is that when you read about a team, you're learning something, even if it's your own or an opponent. Uh, I want, I want you to learn about that team. So I could talk an hour about Kansas. I don't want to bore you, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the point. Is that, you know, you get enough Alabama, you get enough Clemson, but there's so much uh, unique tradition and, and storylines within college football that I wanted to dig into all of it. So that's great to hear. That's great feedback, and thank you for purchasing. Yeah, and the and the big thing, like when you look at the the analytics side of it, I mean, you you get that, but I like the way that it's it's color coded, it's easy to read, um, it kind of takes some of that like the the boring aspects of pouring through data and kind of puts it in a very readable format, and then you got the the other part where it is a very readable breakdown of of everything, and I and I like how you go into the the history there as well, and and really it, it feels like an individual touch with every team, not just, Oh, here, here's this team. We know all about it. Yeah. It's, it's Virginia tech. They've got Sandman. All right, let's move on to the, to the numbers from last year. No, it's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of fun stuff to dive in there. And I think you really kind of get the, you know, what makes each program kind of unique. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, I mean, once the season ends in January, I kind of go back and relive the season. It sounds crazy, but, um, I'll go back and listen to, to team podcasts and conference podcasts. I read every AP game story, the game recaps, um, just to try and get in the shoes of each fan base and each program and see really what happened. Because, And this is really rings true in 2020 with all the extra context that was involved. You can't just look at a team's record anymore. There's so much more that goes into it, uh, the week-to-week -week of it with the quarantines, 
but more so just within each game, just the flukiness or, you know, you might have one team out gaining by 200 yards and turning the ball over five times. It's, it's so fluky. So you really have to dig in if you really want to, uh, you know, I guess uh, get, get the most accurate picks. So that was the goal. That's what I do. It's my process. It's a long process, but, um, but yeah, and uh, I, I'm excited to, to break down the ACC for you guys. We, we appreciate it. And since I brought up Sandman, we got a, uh, our, our buddy Tally that is a, uh, a, a certified Sandman uh, hater. Hater, hater. Um, I, that might be too strong. He, he he would prefer to move on from Sandman. He's not necessarily a hater. So, But, but it's not. Shout out to Tally. It's not Tally. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, guys, what we're going to do tonight with Brett is we are looking at all of Virginia Tech's ACC opponents and Notre Dame because why not? It's Notre Dame. But before we get into that, we are going to do a quick word from our sponsors. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, so we're going to go in order of the way Virginia Tech plays these teams. So let's start out of the gate, UNC. And Brett, you have got UNC heading to the college football playoff. Um, Now, are you seeing this as mostly a strength? of Sam Howell. They do return their full offensive line. Um, any other components we're missing, you know, improved defense? What, what do you, why are you putting them so high to take elite uh, after losing really their four most, ex, uh, I wouldn't say explosive, but their four most, you know, impressive players on offense less Sam Howell last year? Yeah. So this one's really getting a lot of attention and, and I guess rightfully so. It's a team that's outside the top 10 in the coaches poll. Um, I believe they were either 10th or 11th, but yeah, this is definitely a roulette chip uh, prediction here, but I have UNC winning the coastal winning the conference and making the college football playoff as an outsider, not one of these typical dynasty programs. There's a lot that goes into this. I mean, first I'll start with recruiting. You always start there. That's a good first uh, starting point. And Mac Brown, he's landed a couple top 15 classes. Now uh, it's these five-star guys, uh, some, def- some defensive players that are now moving up the depth chart quickly. Um, so it starts there. Uh, secondly, uh, his coordinator hires were very impressive. Uh, Jay Bateman on defense, he plays that hybrid style where you have guys blending positions and cross training. and uh, It's just great athletes all over the place. But really, it's the offense. Um, I had a chance to interview Phil Longo now for two straight preseasons. And this guy's an offensive genius. The way he pairs his uh, air raid passing concepts on the outsides with a physical downhill run game in the middle. Um, so it's not your typical air raid uh, on, on surface level. It's great balance. You saw it last year when they put up, uh, you know, the two running backs put up 550 yards against Miami rushing. So, so yeah, so they do have a couple question marks at the skill positions. But as I dug in a little bit, I started to feel better about it because, uh, yeah, you lose your top two receivers and your top two backs. And normally that'd be enough to cripple an offense. But uh, they do get back Bo Corrales, who was a 2019 starter. It's a big 6'5 frame, uh, great in the red zone. Um, and then they had Downs, this breakout player, in the bowl game, he, he shined in the, in the Orange Bowl against A&M. So there's your starter there. Um, and then Shoffrey Brown, he uh, apparently beats Diami Brown in foot races in practice back when they were both playing here. So uh, they, they, while they lose Diami, uh, they still have Shoffrey uh, there. So 
Um, a lot to like there at the receiver core, albeit a little bit inexperienced. And then at running back, I know that's going to be a, a bigger duo to replace, but they did help the situation by bringing in Ty Chandler, who was uh, fifth all-time in rushing at Tennessee. I mean, this is a guy played 40 games in the SEC. I think he's going to be okay uh, and bring some some veteran uh, you know ability there. So those were the question marks from there and strengths. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the offensive line, all five starters are back. They're NFL-sized and getting good draft grades. Sam Howell, everybody knows him by now. He's, he stacked two straight uh, like top 10 passing seasons, and he's a Heisman front runner this year. Uh, so it, it's everything for me. It's, it's recruiting, it's uh, scheme, it's returning experience. Um, and then lastly, the defense. That's kind of the biggest question mark on the team and the program. If you look at it only 2020 as a season-wide scope, uh, they were about average on defense. But if you narrow that lens down to the second half of the season, after the bye week, they were top 20. Now, what, what's the deal with that? Why does that matter? Uh, because all these five stars and young guys, these young recruits, they didn't have spring ball last year. They didn't have summer camp. So they were kind of learning on the job in September in games and moving up the depth chart in real time. So once those guys started to break into the starting lineup, it was excellent defense. And all that's back now in 2021. So uh, that's, uh, that, that's where I'm at with UNC. Now, am I nervous about Lane Stadium Friday night? Of course I am. I, I was there back in 2008. Uh, when Virginia Tech played Nebraska. And if you remember that game, it was a day game, but yep. uh, I kind of got the vibe of it. It, it was an electric atmosphere. Um, and Dominican Sue had like a ton of tackles and pass breakups and was all over Tyrod Taylor. But uh, Virginia Tech held him out of the end zone and had that crazy miracle at the end to win. So uh, long story short, it's going to be a tough opener. But schedule-wise, if they get over, over the Virginia Tech comp in the opener, it's a very manageable schedule. No Clemson. Um, and uh, I think they could rattle off a ton of wins. So essentially, if we don't catch them week one, they, they, they should be able to settle in pretty good with some of those new faces. Oh, absolutely, because from there, it's uh, you know Georgia State, UVA, who I'm pretty low on, uh, Georgia Tech, you know, middle of the pack, Duke, really poor this year, and then Florida State transition year. I mean, that's, that's a 6-0 start, I think, if they, they can beat Virginia Tech. Miami will be tough. At Notre Dame will be tough, but but not really. When we get to them next on the schedule, I'm, I'm selling Notre Dame this year as a program. So, um, yeah, so very manageable. I think they go 11-1, and one, win the Coastal, and then have a win and, win and in scenario against Clemson and Charlotte. And they have the okay. offensive firepower to do it. Yeah, and Brett mentioned there about them being a meddling defense last year. And, and they truly were. They were, you know, a 58th total defense, um, giving up, you know, almost six yards per play. And then 65th in points per game, giving up 29. But I see your point, Brett. Um, you doing the analytics, seeing they got better as the season goes on. Um, and I'd have to go back and look at the competition. But I, I, I'm going to take your word that uh, you expect to see an uptick in that. So let, let's roll on. All right. So Notre Dame, you've got, uh, as you said already, you're 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 selling Notre Dame this year a lot lower than than a lot of other folks out there. It looks like uh, Jack Cohn was just named the starter for this team. Um, what are some of the reasons you've got Notre Dame kind of slotted more of a fringe top 25 team compared to like a fringe college football playoff team where we're used to seeing them? Yeah, so Notre Dame, they have a great track record the last few years and a lot, a lot of respect for what they built there under Brian Kelly. Uh, two playoff appearances. I don't think many programs out there can match that. So uh, my hats are off to what they've done. Uh, I think it's a transition year, though, if, uh, to, to be subtle about it. I think it's a transition year. Uh, the AP poll has them in the top 10. I've got them 24th nationally. 
And really what this comes down to is think of what made them strong last year. It was a uh, strong quarterback play by Ian Book. He really took care of the ball and uh, did enough to win and was clutched in the fourth quarter, all those intangibles. So it was Ian Book. It was one of the best offensive lines in the country. And it was a defensive front seven that was nasty. Now, fast forward to 2021, all that's gone. Uh, Ian Book graduated. Four of these offensive linemen are gone. And it's uh, all Americans like Liam Eikenberg, Aaron Banks, couple other draft picks, Robert Hainsey. I mean, so many guys lost along that offensive line. And then the front seven, uh, speaking to the defense, they lost their coordinator. Clark Lee takes over at his alma mater, Vanderbilt, and they're going through a coordinator change there. So uh, kind of the foundations of what made them special last year are transitioning. Um, so I think that early on in the season, they're, they're primed for an upset victory for Virginia Tech. It's, it's definitely doable. Um, and you mentioned Jack Cohn. Yeah, it, it's an, an experienced Power 5 starter. But I, don't, I think it's going to be tougher than people are picturing to replace Ian Book. He did so much. Um, you don't think of him as a runner or as a dual threat. But in the pocket, very elusive. It's hard to lay a finger on him. He was mobile enough and, uh, and was decisive enough. So I think they lose a lot with him gone. I was going to ask, was that one big reason? Cone's coming from the Wisconsin offense, which is really power run based play action versus – we can remember Ian Book. We go back to 2019 in that last drive, Notre Dame-Virginia Tech that sealed the game for them there were several times he scrambled. Even though he's not a dual-threat quarterback, he had that element which definitely improved the offense. Now, Brett, you did mention Clark Lee. He did move on to Vanderbilt. And one thing that's changed, Marcus Freeman comes in over from Cincinnati. Um, Freeman's real popular in Virginia Tech. A lot of people, (laughs) certain people, think that he could be the next head coach here or they'd like him as the next head coach here. Now, what does he – bring to the Irish that could really help them mitigate some of these personnel losses um, from last year? Yeah, well, Marcus Freeman, he's a, he's a former star linebacker himself from Ohio State and uh, quickly surging up the coaching ranks. You're right about that. Now, I admit I don't cover the non-AQ team, so I'm familiar with Cincinnati. I don't know the X's and O's on him too, too well yet. What I do know is what he adds in recruiting has been monumental to Notre Dame already in just a few months. Um, they're bringing in a new caliber of player. They went right into Ohio and stole a five-star defender from Ohio State. So I think you're bringing a higher tier of recruiting. That, you know, that's music to ears for Virginia Tech fans. Uh, so you have that. And, uh, of course, he was part of great defenses uh, with Luke Fickle there at Cincinnati, the undefeated teams and, and strong defensive play. So, yeah, he's going to be huge. Now they have some star power they have to replace um, with Jeremiah Wosukoromoa, the All-American winner, and Buckus winner there, gone. Um, but there's still plenty of star power up front, so uh, we'll see. But uh, I think overall it's a transitional year, um, both defensively, at quarterback, offensive line, I think is the biggest issue. There, there's star mm-hmm. power in the backfield, Kyron Williams, um, and, uh, and, and mini Gronk, Gronk Jr., they call him, uh, Michael Mayer at tight end. So there, there's definitely some pieces there. They recruit well, but in general, I don't think this is another playoff caliber team or um, one of their better teams. It's going to be 2022 for that. Okay. Okay. So you think those essentially because that offensive line turned from their biggest strength to, you know, one of the biggest question marks heading into the season, you know, they, they could get snake bitten by a team here or there. So with that being said, uh, our, our friend Tally has a question here. Can VT beat this Notre Dame team this year? I think they're definitely beatable this early on in the season. Um, you know, the, 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 the key question for this specific matchup 
is going to be if you guys can establish the run on that front seven. Um, and, you know, because you're breaking in a relatively new quarterback, Braxton Burmeister. I think he was 3-1 and one in starts last year. We'll call him a part-time starter. Um, but really losing uh, your, your top lineman and Khalil Herbert there. So how quickly can that rushing game reload? Can that dominate this new front seven for Notre Dame? A lot of storylines, but if you're just looking at it program by program, yeah, they're, they're going to be younger, newer, and uh, in, in the second game of the year. Um, that's definitely going to be a tough. I don't know if it's the second game of the year, actually. I keep saying that, but um, it's, it's the fifth, but it's still relatively mid October. Yeah. 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 It's right there before you feel like teams start turning corners. Yeah. So October. we'll see. So, but, yeah. Uh, um, somebody also mentioned on here. I don't know if you, I think you saw it, Brett. They lose in major bowl games. I'd like to be in major bowl games. I wouldn't care if we lost 63 to seven. Just getting there back to back years is an accomplishment in itself for Notre Dame. Um, and like you said, with Marcus Freeman coming in and now bumping up the recruiting, you're seeing 2022 for them being strong and maybe even further out. So, yeah. All right, let's roll on. Um, one team that I think it's because who the coach is, a lot of Virginia Tech fans cannot stand as Pitt and Pat Narduzzi. Um, now, we've seen Kenny Pickett for numerous years. A couple times he's tore us up. A couple times he's gotten torn up. So it seems like they come and go with however Kenny Pickett's playing. He's a fifth-year starter. Usually we don't say that. Usually a guy that starts that much is in the NFL by now, but he's not. So is 21 going to be the same or story with Kenny Pickett? They come and go as he is, or do they have more pieces that might help them improve? Well, college football, it's all about timing. It's all about timing up different roster groups and, and position groups uh, to really mesh a full offense, and then you got to mesh an offense with a defense. And uh, it's been inconsistent here at Pittsburgh where in 2016 through 18, they had solid offenses but nothing on defense. Finally, Narduzzi's de- defense clicked in 2019, but the offense fell out. So it's very inconsistent. Uh, even within the offense, we'll just focus on that for now. Uh, yeah, fifth-year Kenny Pickett. He's got better skill talent around him at receiver and running back than he's had. But then at the same time, the timing again, the offensive line goes through a transition with four starters gone and they're, uh, they're all All-American caliber. Jimmy Morrissey, the center, is gone. So while you pick up some extra pieces in, at the skill spots, he's going to have less protection. And uh, he's already went through a couple injuries last year. So, um, you know, you got to think about his blind side and him in the pocket. He's not the most mobile guy. So no. while you pick up better skill talent, offensive line is transitioning now so it's just timing so that's that's the offense let's talk about the defense a little bit i know they returned uh production from guys like Keyshawn camp and kalaja Kansi, uh but the pieces that they lost were pretty heavy producers on that last year um and then including uh the, you know the opt-out that they had you know will they be able to reload this defense or will there be some growing pains this season yeah, this was kind of a key to my ACC Coastal prediction where I'm a little bit lower on Pittsburgh than most. Uh, I'm kind of selling this defense right now. They lose, like you had mentioned, two All-Americans along that defensive line, Rashad Weaver and Patrick Jones, both gone. And that third guy that was also gone was Jalen Twyman. So, uh, so much star power gone up front, but it doesn't end there. It's also in the backfield, the secondary, that all-conference, all-ACC pair of safeties, Paris Ford and DeMar Hamlin, they're both gone. So, uh, it's quite a reload they have to go through this time around. Now, it was great that he finally clicked that defense in 2019. They matched it in 2020, or, or at least came close in 2020. But I think you're in for a transition. So uh, all that together with the, the offensive line question, uh, Kenny Pickett, 
I don't know why the fifth year compared to the fourth or the third or the second would be the year that everything clicks all of a sudden. Right. So, um, you know, that's kind of a hedge there, but, uh, yeah, so I have Pittsburgh middle of the pack, uh, 45th nationally, but, uh, tied in fourth in the coastal. All right. Let's, let's get out of the pit territory. They do have to play in lane stadium this year, not Heinz field. Thank goodness for us. That place is a house of horror for the Hokies. There's yellow seats. Oh yeah. It's the yellow seats. And really, since I go back to when we were younger, you know, in college and stuff, and we, we could not win at Heinz Field for some reason. And it, the tradition continued less 2016 when we played fade ball and Pat Narduzzi lost his mind on the sideline, which is a whole other story and one of those fun things to watch. Now, let's go to, to me, a team that has been struggling the last couple of years, Syracuse. You know, they bring back a lot of production from last year. That production did not produce a lot of wins or anything last year. And, you know, I mean, does another year of seasoning really help this team? Or is it just – I mean, what do you see for them, man? Is it is any hope there? Well, now that we're five years into the Dano, Bieber, Dano Babers era um, – sorry, Dino Babers uh, era, it's starting to look that 2018 was the outlier. It's starting to look like that was somewhat of a fluke season. Um, of course, Syracuse has been a losing program for really about 15, 20 years now. They had a, a rare 10 win season popped out of nowhere, and it's been back to the re- back to the usual uh, bottom of the barrel ACC program. And uh, it can really be traced to two spots. Uh, first, quarterback. That's the easy one. Um, once Eric Dungy left, there was a transition there. It was Tommy DeVito. He was banged up, and now they have a Mississippi State transfer, Garrett Schrader, in there. Uh, a little bit more mobility. To the skill set, but still, uh, I think you're learning that the post Dungy era is uh, is a tough offense to come by. But really, besides quarterback, it's really the entire problem of this of this program is offensive line. It just continues to be a destructive unit to their offense uh, in the and their entire team. They allowed 38 sacks last year in 11 games. Only Kansas had more. I mean, that's bottom of the barrel nationally. And uh, and what what that means is it gives no time for intermediate passing or vertical passing. So on passes 10 plus yards down the field, Syracuse completed just 23% of them. So it's just, it, it's an offense that's completely stuck and, and uh, limited by that offensive line. So yes, they have starters back, but until that line shows me anything, I mean, you got to keep them last place in the conference. Yeah, and, and lucky for the Hokies, we're, we don't get to have to go to the carrier dome, which has been notorious a, uh, getting snake bitten there for the Hokies for whatever reason. It seems like we like a, like a lot of teams, they just come out flat for that game. So getting them at home, I think is going to, going to be good going along with, with some of those other, you know, just overall struggles that they had last year, I think carried over to this year, but let's talk about Dino Babers a little bit more because this kind of, you know, to me, this kind of has a feeling of a, of a make or break campaign for him. Is, is, is that your thinking as well? Or, you know, do you think he gets another couple of years to try to right the ship? Well, yeah, I think that uh, it might have run its course by now. Uh, I think it was an interesting hire bringing this uh, air raid pass heavy concept up to the northeast. Uh, you know, I'm based out of Pennsylvania and I know anything north of me, they're not throwing the ball around. So uh, <laughs> to see that kind of Texas style offense come up here was unique and it clicked for in 2018. It even clicked a couple of times before that in some of his first years. Um, I think they had Virginia Tech and they beat Clemson the one year and mm-hmm. he was known for his big locker room, uh, you know, celebrations and, you know, an emotional guy. It, it was going well. 
But since that peak, that 10-win season, it's been straight downhill, and last year was just really inexcusable. So now with starters back, um, you know, if you don't see progress in the win column or at least offensive line-wise, that'd be, that'd be grounds to maybe move on. Now he's made a couple changes. Uh, he went with the unique defense, going with that rare three-three-five base defense. So I, I, I credit him for, you know, he's, he's creative. He's trying to make things click up in the Northeast, which is kind of a dead zone for college football. So uh, we'll see, but I think you got to get some more wins in the win column to be safe. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, one of the things I think uh, you know, we, when we look back on Syracuse, you know, they had a run of of, of a good while there where they were a, a really quality program, and it's been very hit or miss kind of since the early two thousands. So, absolutely, they were. I mean, from the mid eighties into the early two thousands, I mean, they won ten ten games multiple times. They went to multiple big bowls and. Then after McNabb and the miss on Vic, probably one of the biggest things that ever happened to Syracuse was missing recruiting Michael Vick in 98. It was down to Syracuse and Virginia Tech. Um, Brett, they missed him, and it seems like after that they fell off. But let's move on to further south. Let's look at Georgia Tech. Um, you know, Jeff Collins had a hell of a thing to do when he arrived at Georgia Tech. It's rebuilding a roster. From the Paul Johnson, cut your knees out, flex bone option offense. Yeah, I said it. I'm slandering it. Too many guys have gotten injured, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you know, but they returned Jeff Sims. Jeff Sims, amazing athlete, you know, and had had good, consistent recruiting classes. Not great, but good getting some talents in the door. Um, is this the season we finally see them maybe take a step up, or are you seeing them kind of meddle? Yeah, I think you're in for a pretty big step forward uh, in the win column, at least. And uh, and for what it's worth, you saw a step forward from his first year, 19, to second year, 2020, although it didn't show up in the win column. But statistically, analytically, watching them, they were certainly improved in 2020. Uh, it's just with a shortened season, no non-conference, it, the, the record didn't show it. So I think you're going to get the win boost and more performance boost. Uh, it's returning production on both sides of the ball. And that comes from, hey, that's the, the dividends are paying off finally from playing such a young roster in 2019. The, the biggest transition, I call it the biggest program transition since Nebraska went away from the option uh, back in 2004 when they went from the old I, you know, I formation option, Frank Solich, to Bill Callahan's NFL West Coast passing offense. So, um, and with that, you know, what they did here similarly, moving away from Johnson's flex bone option, uh, yeah, it's going to take multiple years to, to recruit positions he never recruited before tight ends they didn't have a single tight end it was all a backs and c backs and b backs and full backs so um yeah it's a heck of a transition now to his credit he's done everything right jeff collins he's really rebranded them as atlanta's team he's made them seem cool to the recruits in the area he loves atlanta i, I had the chance to interview him uh before the 2020 season and uh you could just hear it through the phone his, his passion for georgia tech uh he brought a, a waffle house cart to practice that was a big deal on twitter <laughs> um, and, and it wasn't all just smoke and mirrors. He landed a top 25 recruiting class, which is their highest in, I think, 15 years there. So uh, it seems like it's heading in the right direction. This year you'll get all those dividends paying off. Um, I think they found their quarterback there with Jeff Sims. You mentioned him. Uh, Jameer Gibbs also in the backfield. He hits the hole really fast and, and brings that kick return speed. So there's a lot to like. It's veteran finally, and they're now three years into this transition. So time to collect some wins. Yeah, and when we look back at uh, at 2020, uh, we usually do end of the season, we do like a weekly uh, 
kind of pick against the spread. And Georgia Tech was the one that kept stinging me every week because they'd have a good game. I'd be like, okay, I'm a little bit higher on them. I think they're going to put some consistency in there, and then they'd go out and fall flat the next week. So I think maybe getting some more, you know, a little, little more seasoning there might help them. But, you know, let's talk about um, their defense a little bit because they did seem to have a propensity to give up some big plays last year. Um, is there anyone on that roster that looks poised to take a step and help them on that front? Yeah. I mean, first off, it's it's interesting to think about because in that opener, remember last year they opened up against Florida State. At the time, we thought that this was a legit Florida State team, and you had Georgia Tech holding them to 13 points, uh, playing like crazy. So I thought, wow, what a transition. It looks like this Georgia Tech defense is for real. And then fast forward a week, they give up 700 yards to UCF, and and then we start to learn that, hey, Florida State isn't the old Florida State. They're, they're pretty bad. So uh, it was all about first impressions, and they've worn off now. So with that said, though, nine starters are back. Uh, that's good for 20th nationally in returning production on defense. So uh, that's usually a pretty reliable indicator of a year-to-year improvement. Um, so, yeah, he runs a 4-2-5 base scheme, Andrew Thacker, and all five defensive backs are back. So you have experience in the secondary. They also added uh, Kenyatta Watson who was a top 150 recruit there from Texas. Uh, he was pushing to start, but it was a crowded Texas secondary. So he's in, um, adding some, you know, some almost five-star talent there. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's there's transfers coming in. I think they also added an all-conference USA player from Old Dominion. So, yeah, we'll see if it clicks. There is one big vacancy at linebacker, losing tackle machine David Curry. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, although he gobbled up a lot of tackles, maybe – didn't have the athleticism to make the, you know, the all ACC teams and such. So, um, yeah, look at just the overall a ton of production back and you want to see now that that translate into progress on the field and in the numbers. So, you know, first step is there. Let's see if they can execute. So this is the first big uh, road conference game for Virginia Tech. Is this kind of that trap game, a team that on paper we probably should win, but with with, with, with some of the, the things that they're – steps they're taking forward and then playing at home and being the first road test. Is that something that could uh, kind of come back and bite us? Yeah. Well, when you look at programs in the ACC coastal, Georgia tech might have the biggest uh, variance, the biggest, uh, the most volatility of outcomes. I mean, if you think of it as a stock, I mean, they could, they could skyrocket with all this experience and all those close losses now converting to wins and they can take care of the ball. Turnovers have been bad. Those things tend to even out. So, they could click and become really a top 25 caliber team. Or, of course, they could stay where they are in, in, in that three-win territory, and it just so happens that the returning experience has a ceiling on it, and they're kind of stuck in the, in the three-win land. So they could do anything. They're very variable. I have them tied with Pittsburgh there fourth, but um, I could see them going in, in any direction, really. Uh, I see Brian writing right there, Brett. Make no bets or anything towards Georgia Tech this year with last year. <laughs> and and saying volatility. So yeah. We're gonna move on we're gonna move on to another uh away game. Um a Friday night game up at BC. Um you've already said it and you've already put it out there. You said Phil Jerkovich is a program changer for BC. Um obviously they haven't had this sort of potential quarterback talent in close to fifteen years, last being Matt Ryan. So tell us, why do you think he is the one to lift the BC out of the six to seven win doldrums, as it seems like it's been forever with them between Adazio and Halfley? Yeah, he really was a program changer. This was a big time deal, uh, landing him through the transfer portal from Notre Dame. 
Um, the obvious is that, hey, he's a starting quarterback. He's putting up a ton of yards and breaking records. But uh, more so, it kind of unlocked the transfer portal for Boston College. It made it a destination to other five-star and four-star recruits, uh, or I should say transfers. Because uh, after Jerkovic made the move over, uh, five-star receiver Jalen Gill from Ohio State, five-star safety Jaden Lars Woodby from Florida State, they both came to Chestnut Hill. So uh, he kind of was the first domino to fall. And, of course, it helps that he backed it up right away on the field. Uh, just um, four of those first five games were 300-yard passing days. That's a BC record. That's from, from a school that has a Heisman winner, Doug Flutie, uh, NFLers, Matt Hasselback, Matt Ryan. So uh, he made a, a huge instant impact. But really what, what makes me excited about Boston College this year is uh, the receiver core. It's their best they've ever had. Uh, they have Zay Flowers back. He's all ACC caliber. They get Kobe White back from injury. People forget about him, but he was incredible a couple years ago. He's back, so that's a heck of a one-two punch. Uh, I just mentioned five-star uh, Gill there. He's going to be their third option. Uh, might even move up higher than that. So this is the best uh, you know receiver core they've ever had at a program that has usually just been a, a power run game. So mm-hmm. um, that, a very veteran offensive line. Everyone's talked about them. So the question becomes, can the defense make enough gains? Can they be strong enough to, to hold leads against some of these teams? And uh, can BC finally get out of that seven-win range? They definitely have the capability to do it. So I know last year uh, Boston College seemed to get kind of snake-bitten by the uh, the athletic quarterback. Are they going to do anything this year to kind of limit explosive plays from that position? Um, and are they trying to do anything? Like, is, is what they do, is that going to give them kind of create holes in other parts of that defense if they get, say, smaller at the linebacker position? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so one move they already made is that they moved, I already mentioned him, uh, Jaden Lars would be the five-star safety from Florida State. Uh, they moved him down the linebacker. So getting him into the box, um, that's kind of tra- uh, trading size for speed there in the middle tier of the defense. Uh, Jeff Halfley, I mean, that, this defense is his area of expertise. He's a defensive coach, defensive coordinator. He was the coordinator on Ohio State's 2019 team that was the best defense in the country. Had Chase Young there as a Heisman candidate. So uh, he's a proven mind. I had the chance of interviewing him, too, and, and, and just like Jeff Collins, very passionate about Boston College and building this thing up. It's another younger coach, uh, younger head coach, but, um, yeah, I mean, that this is his strength, that side of the ball. So I, I think that uh, with him there, uh, they should be improving on defense, what you would think. So we'll see if they can defend better against the, the running quarterbacks because, um, yeah, those guys gave them troubles. Brendan Armstrong last year crushed them. Uh, Hendon Hooker, when he was in for Virginia Tech, uh, they couldn't stop him either, so. That was definitely the the, uh, the Achilles heel. So th- this one back to back with the Georgia Tech road trip and then a trip up to Chestnut Hill. You know, you, what do you think the Hokies are able to pull off? Uh, you know, two and zero on that trip. Yeah, that'd be impressive because um, while, while I think you'll be uh, pretty much favored over Georgia Tech, I think the BC game is more of a toss up to me. Uh, in fact, I have them ranked. I think either right next to each other, thirty third and thirty fourth overall, Virginia Tech and BC. So. That's really a coin flip game. So if you come out of there 2-0, and that's that's solid. I mean, um, you know, so yeah. And two road trips, no less. And I know they're smaller programs, smaller schools, but um, given the right occasion, both those stadiums can be rocking. Uh, I was actually up yeah. at BC when they played Clemson a couple of years ago and hosted College Game Day. And although it only seats about 40,000, that place, because BC returned a punt return for a touchdown to take the lead, that place was one of the loudest I've heard. I mean, it, the, the, the roof came off of that place, so. Uh, in the right environment, in the right setting, it can be intimidating. So we'll see. 
Yeah, they don't they don't quite have the numbers there, but they definitely have a great atmosphere, and that can definitely be intimidating for opponents sometimes. Yeah, great atmosphere when it's um when they're packed. I want to ask you a real quick question and do a little you know hypothetical here. If you put Jerkovich on Notre Dame, how many places higher would you have Notre Dame this year? Wow, that is ah, excellent. I like it. I like it. Football. Um, definitely. I mean, obviously higher. Uh, I would take him over Jack Cohn instantly. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'd probably have them top 15. Now, there's still enough questions that I, I'd still – it doesn't settle my opinions about their offensive line going through its transition, uh, the coordinator change on defense. So, I would still shy away from top 10 for them, uh, but but a lot closer than number 24 where I currently have them. So, yeah, that's a great hypothetical. Yeah. So, so probably closer to that, you know, 15 to 12 range that yeah, I, I, I guess some other folks have them. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean – he has, you know, some mobility there. He's a he's a really big kid. Yeah. He doesn't go down easy. Kind of reminds me of of Roethlisberger in his uh, in his <laughs> college days. So, yeah, I can definitely see that being a step forward. So let's move on um, to uh, to Duke. Um, wow, this team is just not returning very much production from last year, and and, and they weren't a very good football team last year uh, either. Um, yeah. Was last season kind of a not, an anomaly for the Cutcliffe era, or is this kind of a sign of things to come, you think? Well, yeah, it's been a, a steady decline since they won the, the Coastal Division. And last year was by far the worst. And when you dig into it a bit, there's a couple things. I mean, first, his passing attack, I think, was more cutting edge uh, earlier in the decade or in the middle of the decade, but it's kind of gotten a bit stale and predictable. So uh, schematically, I think they're kind of stuck in the mud. But really, it was turnovers. And I know that every fan base complains about that, and, and you hear that from everybody. But, but no, statistically, this was the most turnovers by any FBS team, not just Power 5, but all of FBS, since 2012. So you're talking about worse than a decade turnovers. Um, so, yeah, and it was a, a combination there, turnover margin of offense giving it away like crazy. Uh, you know, their quarterback threw the most picks in the, in the, in the, in the entire country. Uh, but then the defense couldn't take the ball away, so – you know, that combo obviously is a bad recipe. So, yeah, it, it was his worst year ever at Duke. Um, and it looks like they're on the decline as a program. Back to their historic mean there as a below average program. All right. So, I'll, I'll, it's a similar question to what you asked with Babers. You know, to the historical nature of Duke, I mean, you go back for a 15-year stretch, they averaged two wins. They had one winning season. From when Spurrier left in '89 up until Cutcliffe's winning first winning season in the mid 2000s, uh, is his job safe until he decides to retire? Because Duke has been so bad, and at least he's made them somewhat relevant, pulling off some wins, making a bowl game here and there. Or is it, or is it bust? Or is it they say we, we've got to, we can't look on the past laurels. We've got to continue to try to at least make a bowl game every year. Yeah, I kind of get the sense that given their program context and, and how it's so basketball-centric and kind of anything that football is kind of icing on the cake, I hate to think of it that way, but if you try and get into their shoes as a, as a school and an alumni base, uh, that's how I kind of see it. And the way that he brought them to, to great heights in a crowded conference and a Power 5 conference and won a division, um, I think that he has a much longer leash than the average coach and maybe even just can go out on his terms. So um, I don't think it'll be a dramatic firing or a – you know, a Black Monday, whatever they call it, on the uh, the day after rivalry weekend. 
Um, so it'll be on his own terms, I think, uh, barring anything like a, a winless season or a scandal. But uh, he's done so much for them as a program that I think that he gets to call his shots when he heads out. Yeah, not just delivering wins to a program that isn't used to it, but you know, he's he's definitely uh, seemed to be a very uh, ambassador of goodwill for the ACC. I think most of the coaches enjoy Cutcliffe, so I think that that might play a role as well. And, and just you know, his his history overall, it seems like they want to uh, they they probably won't move on unless it gets really bad, like you were talking about there. Yeah, I mean, everyone from what I mentioned, coaches to to media members too, they love like. There's guys who aren't anywhere near the Duke market, but they try to get Cutcliffe on because he's such a good guy to talk to. Um, now, the one thing I told Brian as we were discussing yesterday, and, I, and I'll throw this at you: Cutcliffe is in his mid sixties, so he's probably got five to seven years left coaching. Do you think it could be one of those things where he maybe wants to leave, maybe? go be an offensive coordinator at, you know, a top 15 school where he knows I'm going to get talent. I can create new concepts because say what you will, what he did between Tennessee and Ole Miss and Duke offensively, he wanted Ole Miss and Duke. He has an above 500 winning percentages at those two schools. Do you think you could see him sort of, I want to leave because I want to go chase one more national title like I did at Tennessee? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, hypothetical there. Of course, he made his uh, his big start at Tennessee. Um, I don't know. At that age and at that point in your career, you've been a head coach for so long. Um, I wonder if they'd be willing to give up the reins and, and get more into a coordinator role. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how that works. The head coach can sometimes get away with being a CEO-type coach in the recruiting world, having the coordinators be the grinders. And uh, So I don't know if you want to get back into that role. It's impossible mm-hmm. for me to know. Uh, that's a personal thing with him. So. I don't know. It's interesting, but I, I kind of I, I, I think that this is his last stand and uh, hopefully make a bull push and get dunked with Gatorade and ride off into the sunset. But uh, we'll see. You never know. For Coach Cut, we really hope so. All right, so big one near the end of the season, this rivalry really 25 years in the making. In the early 90s, it was a brawl between Miami and Virginia Tech. Miami is returning a ton of talent from last season, especially on offense. Is this season, is the ceiling for this team really on how well Derek King's ACL holds up six months later? Well, without Derek King, uh, all bets are off. I mean, I don't, I don't think they have a chance at anything without him. Uh, that's really mm-hmm. been the one position group, maybe along with offensive line, but definitely quarterback that has held them back during the Manny Diaz era and some years before that too. So what, what he brought immediately when he transferred in from Houston was not only stability at quarterback, but highlight plays uh, like a human highlight reel passing, throwing, uh, I mean, passing and running uh, dual threat. Um, and people think about his running mostly, but pass completion wise, he's got the Miami all time record right now for completion percentage above Bernie Kosar. So uh, he's excellent in both sides of the game without him. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where they go. They have a couple guys right now, in, or, or were in spring ball, battling it out uh, with Tyler Van Dyke and Jake Garcia. But uh, this guy is special, D.R. King. So he was probably the biggest uh, one-man addition out there in Power 5, along with their coordinator, Rhett Lashley, who turned around an offense that was really stuck in the mud the last couple of years, really made them um, you know, a powerful offense. His power spread offense that he brought in, um, it clicked, so... Uh, a couple issues that might hold them back are at receiver. 
And I know that returning production-wise, yeah, they're all returning starters and have stats. But uh, if you watch them and check out other analytics and drop rates, they were some of the worst drop rates out there. They got to improve on catching the ball and and setting up King for success. Now, they they do add in Charleston Rambo, who started two seasons at Oklahoma. That's that's a massive transfer portal win. Um, And lastly, though, so the defense has been uh, a strong point for Miami for years. And I think that'll continue, but they are going through a coordinator change with Blake Baker gone. Um, and they also lose a ton of firepower along the defensive line, especially the, the rush edge and defensive end spots, uh, losing Jalen Phillips, Quincy Roche, and Greg Rousseau all to the NFL. So uh, that's some firepower gone from the pass rush. So we'll see how all that comes together. I want to ask you real quick. I know Brian's got a, something to ask about the defense, but I'm looking at the time frame of De'Eric King's ACL tear. I'm a 49ers fan, Brett, just so you know. So our tear last year was Nick Bosa tearing his ACL week two. Nick Bosa just started getting in pads this week. He's almost a year out. He's got to go against Alabama week one. I mean, from your looking at it analytically, if they know he can't run, how much does it hinder that offense from doing what it can do. Oh, it's huge. And and picture this too, who they're going against. You give Nick Saban eight months to prep for a, um, you know, Derek King who's in handcuffs and can't run. I, that's just, uh, that's unfair. So, yeah. Um, and then when you break down Alabama, not to get, you know, we're getting like a second effect here, but real quick, their defense first this year. And that, that pass rush is incredible at Alabama. Their front seven's nasty. So uh, yeah, that's a bad formula for Miami. So let's talk more about the defense then, because you know you, you talked about the the explosive guys that are gone from that defense, um, you know, from the pass rush, the edge position. Uh, they get most of their secondary back though. Um, will they be able to generate enough pressure on the quarterback to actually maximize that experience they have on the back end? So I think they will. It won't be as incredible as last year. They were uh, one of the best sack teams out there and tackles for loss, but. Um, I will say that schematically, that's what they're going for. Uh, one of my stats I run is my negative play percentage. And what that means, it just tracks how often a, a defense is making plays in the backfield or at the line of scrimmage. And it's somewhat stylistic where some teams will uh, you know, blitz a ton to try and create havoc in the backfield and might get burnt more in long yardage plays in the backside. But, um, but long story short, under Manny Diaz, this team is always in the top 10 of my negative play rate. They're an aggressive style defense. It's attacking. And, um, you know, that was before Blake Baker got here as coordinator, and I think it'll continue now that he's gone. It's more a Manny Diaz thing. So they're going to try for it. Now, can they hit home enough? Uh, we'll see, because that's three legit NFLers gone from that pass rush. But uh, they recruit well here, as you guys know, one of the best in the conference, uh, top 15 nationally. So there's probably guys that are ready to step up. Um, and I think the secondary will hold it down uh, while that pass rush comes of age because they get a five-star in from, uh, from UGA. Tyreek Stevenson comes in. They have Bubba Bolden, who was incredible last year, uh, you know, all-conference caliber safety there, um, coming in from USC. So, uh, And then, yeah, tons of guys, uh, Ivy, Al Bleeds. So, um, yeah, we'll see. But uh, there's a lot to like while that pass rush gets its footing. So what you're telling me, it might be a, a little bit of a struggle down there in uh, in South Beach when, when the Hokies take a trip down there. Yes. Only if King's healthy. Without King, all bets are off, like I said. So we're going to learn a lot <laughs> week one against Alabama. 
All right, so we're, we're going to move from one rival to another. UVA closing out the regular season for the Hokies. Um, yeah, they, they played well down the stretch last season, um, but they did lose con- convincingly to the Hokies at Lane Stadium to close out their season. Do you have kind of a stock rising or a stock falling grade on this season heading into 2021? So not only because I'm on a Virginia Tech show, but uh, in all <laughs> honesty, I have them as a, as a downgrade this year. I had them sixth in the Coastal and uh, 55th out of 65 Power 5 teams. So, um, yeah, I don't, see, uh, I don't see them bouncing back towards you know, fighting for a conference or title crown again. Now, to his credit, Brennan Armstrong was great. He filled in for Bryce Perkins, that role, that do-it-all role in Mendenhall's offense, uh, you know, shouldering a ton of carries in the run game, accurate passing. So he was fine. It's just that from there, I don't see many other pieces uh, of, of what would be a ranked team or a conference contender. Uh, starting the backfield, they really lacked a, tr- a traditional running game. Uh, usually teams have a feature back or a couple guys, uh, but the running backs don't do much for them there. And then a receiver, they lose a, co- a couple key pieces. Uh, du Bois and Joe Reed are gone. And their breakout freshman, the six seven Laryl Davis, Breakout star, he's injured. So uh, there's, uh, I think, a lack of firepower on offense. And then, uh, you know, you, you lose a couple stars on defense, too. And really the pass defense has been what's held them back uh, for about a year and a half now. I have the stats all in the book, but you can see a yeah. clear decline there midway through 2019, and it's been terrible passing defense since. So, yeah, so it's funny. When you look at Virginia Tech the last three years, uh, the Hokies have lost to three in-state teams, Liberty, Old Dominion and UVA, but if you ask some alumni, I wonder which one they're more upset about. It might be that UVA. So I think you'll defend the Commonwealth Cup again for another year, make it, what, 16 out of 17 or something crazy? Yeah, that'd be nice to see again. Um, We we did not like the Commonwealth Cup leaving Blacksburg in 2019. That that one definitely stung, and I don't think we necessarily want to say UVA – is our benchmark in terms of whether a season is successful or unsuccessful, but we definitely want to keep that, that cup at home every year. So yeah, we'll see. I, and the, the big thing, I, I, this is kind of a little bit of an inverse of what we were dealing with, with Miami. Um, you, you hit on it a little bit with the secondary uh, being pretty weak for UVA. You know, they also lost um, you know, two of their best pass rushers um, from last season are they going to be able to generate enough pressure on the quarterback to hide what is objectively an awful secondary? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, that's kind of one of the major factors of me having them so low. I think if you look at some of the other preseason magazines out there, they have UVA uh, higher than sixth, probably in that fourth or fifth or even third range. But I've got them down at sixth because of that star power gone from the linebackers and, and edge rush positions. And just in general, the secondary – uh, it was, uh, I think it was Bryce Hall. When he went down to injury in 2019, that pass defense really collapsed. And it continued again in 20. And I don't know why it would change all of a sudden in 2021 uh, with those stars in front of him gone. So, yeah. And then when you look at it, I also like to look in between the season, you know, first half, second half. Uh, second half of this season, 2020, they were one of the worst defenses in America. So, and I know that everyone's got context with injuries and, and all kinds of stuff, weird 2020 stuff, but um, there's not enough there for me to see a, a complete overnight change. Gotcha. Um, I want to say, you, did you predict the 2019 UVA Coastal win? 
because of the, the Perkins factor? Uh, I did not. I don't think I okay. had UVA. Um, okay. I'm trying to go into memory banks, but, you know, but clearly, you know, they're, 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 the defense, the back end looks terrible. And obviously, I'm assuming what for them to be to that fourth to third range, maybe fifth range, Brennan Armstrong has to put Bryce Perkins like, you know, numbers up. And that's something you're not seeing. So, um, you know, which as a Virginia Tech fan, uh, that's good for certain family members of mine. They don't like to hear that. So, <laughs> hey, I'm just being real, man. All right. Before we get into Virginia Tech, one more question to ask you. What is the one AC scene we haven't mentioned here, not on our schedule, not Clemson, but we need to watch out for? Like early season, watch a few of their games because you feel like they have a chance to really do something this year. So not opponent that knocks out UNC and Miami and not Clemson. So I think next in line would have to be NC State. Uh, this is a team that I have right near the top 25, 26 nationally, uh, second okay. in the ACC Atlantic. And what you have with NC State under Dan, uh, Dave Doran, he's produced a lot of NFL players, has been kind of stuck at that nine-win range. But this time around, everything's clicking where you have uh, second-year coordinators. Remember, this, t- this time last year, there was no spring ball, no summer camp, and mm-hmm. he went with a double coordinator change, bringing in – uh, Tim Beck on offense and Tony Gibson on defense with a rare three-three-five scheme. So with no install time, they actually still did pretty well. I mean, both coordinators were great. The offense and defense both rose. Now you get the double dividend of all returning production and returning coordinators, a second-year bonus schematically. So I think the sky's the limit for NC State. They can really collect some wins. Um, every position group looks solid when you break it down. Uh, there's not many holes here, so... Um, I look for them as a legit top 25 caliber team and, uh, you know, possible for an upset here or there, depending on who they're playing. Yeah. And now the, the Beck came over from Texas. Uh, Gibson came over from West Virginia. And obviously they've got two Virginia Tech coaches in Charlie Wiles and Brian Mitchell at the corner position. But I want to ask you a question because really referring to really their defensive side, they bring all but one starter back. But when a starter is like a Liam McNeil, high NFL draft pick, highly productive player. As you were looking into making your decisions, how much does that go into when it's one guy, but he is essentially all ACC, all American top draft pick? How does that go into when you, you know, you know, analyze this data you have? Yeah, it's, uh, it's important. I mean, not all returning starters are equal. Not all, you know, not all graduating seniors are the same, but uh, yeah, that's one big hole, but, 10 starters around him are back and not just that, but they hit the transfer portal really well. Uh, in fact, it was Florida state who they rated. They got a couple starters. These aren't backup guys. These are veterans starters and even some all conference caliber players uh, bringing in Corey Durden from their defensive line and, and Cyrus Fagan in the secondary. So while you have 10 starters back, you add two basically starters from Florida state and, uh, and more so than that, it's like I said, it's them having their second full year in the scheme a real offseason, a real spring to learn it. The three three five, it's it's not your normal, you know, base defense. Like you know, everyone's four three or three four. So going to this one, um, I, they needed that extra year of, of coaching. So it's going to go a long way for them. And uh, yeah, of course, McNeil's a huge loss, but overall, full profile, I like what they have here. Yeah, and Dave Doran in twenty twenty. I mean, some people thought he was you know knocking on 
um, you know, the hot right. seat there. <laughs> and then all of you know, he has a has a pretty good campaign, has a really good off season and getting some guys in the portal and now they're they're essentially gearing up to you know, potentially make some noise this year. So that that's a that's a big big uh switch in just, you know, twelve twelve months there for them. Yeah, for sure. And uh one last note, their recruiting profiles really improved too. Um they had some some record high classes for their context back in eighteen and nineteen. So those high classes, they're coming of age as starters. So to fill McNeil's void there at nose tackle, it's not just one, but three four stars are all battling for that nose tackle spot. Um, and then Durden being added. So, yeah, so everything's kind of coming into, into fruition here. This is a year to really break through in the win column because that's been kind of what's hold, uh, held him back. They've produced a ton of NFLers, but, mm-hmm. you know, the win-loss record is nothing to be proud of so far. Um, against Power 5 teams that finish with nine wins or more, he's 0-22. So you got to start winning some notable games, and I think that this is the year to do it. All right, so now that we've, we've touched on uh... – Every other opponent the, the Hokies have this year. Let's talk about the Hokies themselves a little bit. You know, the the big one is is on offense. We're looking at at the metrics and just the overall production that Khalil Herbert generated last year was pretty ridiculous. And losing a couple pieces on the offensive line, how do you think Virginia Tech goes about replacing that production in twenty twenty one? Yeah, well, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, because that that running game was so dominant. And really the offensive line as a unit in the run game was – they were road graders or whatever the term is for that. I mean, it was impressive. Christian Darisol, he earned uh, All-American honors. It was a first-rounder. But, you know, it, it's hard to replace that. And now, of course, Lasita Smith and Tenuta, uh, they return. They're getting high grades themselves. But uh, to lose such a big piece like Darisol and the running back there, Herbert, uh, that's really the, the engine of that offense last year. So uh, definitely question marks there. The other transfer from that cycle, I believe, was uh, was Blackshear from Rutgers. But I think mm-hmm. that he was moving over to slot receiver. He's a, a different type of runner than, than uh, Herbert. So uh, definitely a question mark for me in the run game. And uh, and we'll see about that. Passing-wise, it was a battle, Burmeister and Hooker. Of course, Hooker leaves for, I think it was Tennessee. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. fully Burmeister's team this year. We didn't see too much of him. I think I said earlier he was 3-1 and one in his four starts. And there wasn't much statistical variance between when Burmeister was in and when Hooker was in. Sometimes when I look into it, I look at which games each quarterback started and played in and try and grade them that way. But they were pretty similar outcomes when either guy was in. So, um, so yeah, big question mark here. This will say a lot about Fuente, uh, the, the way that he can kind of transition from a, a great rushing attack and see if they can make gains in the passing attack now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Raheem Blackshear is a guy that my partner here absolutely <laughs> threw things at the TV with with the way they used him. The video we had from Rutgers and the highlights, it was like this is a hybrid guy. You have to use him multiple ways. How he used him was incorrect. The coaching staff actually came out, owned it, that they were putting too much on him last year, which we like to hear. So hopefully that changes. Now, I'm going to flip the defense because as you just said it. How dominant the running game was last year. Let me say you something, and you and it's and you and you painted a picture perfectly in the magazine. We were bad statistically on defense, you know, in just about every category. Um, it did show flashes at times, and in certain games, it looked like, well, this looks like a Bud Foster lunch pail, you know, defense. Do you think that breaking in a new defensive coordinator in the COVID era, um, had a big impact on those numbers and? How much improvement do you predict for this defense 
come the 2021 season? So first off, when I look at all these 66 programs and, and 2020 was so weird, all these different side storylines and everything, all this extra context, but Virginia Tech's defense is really the poster child of that. They, they had it all, unfortunately. It was uh, a coordinator change, and not just any coordinator change, but replacing an all-time coaching legend, Bud Foster, after some 30 years there along the sidelines. So massive transition there with no prep time. Then you had what you thought would be an All-American guy uh, with Caleb Farley. So he opts out. You had the opt-out factor now, and that was, that was new in 2020. Uh, so you lose him. Then you lost multiple starters, and, and the rotation was thin, and there was all these quarantines. I remember early, early in the season on the broadcast, they were saying, like, 25 players are out tonight. So mm -hmm. uh, just yeah. every single storyline 2020-related possible hit this defense. So all, all to say that I think you're in for a statistical improvement in 2021. It, it can't get worse because you have a second-year bonus with the coordinator. It's a more normal offseason. You're not going to have opt-outs in August. Um and, and now you have some, uh, some, some more proven pieces within this scheme. So, uh, yeah, it's going to get better. Uh, it was just a really fluky season last year, specifically to this defense. Yeah, we, we were watching it. There were some moments that just seemed like it looks like they just didn't have enough preparation time, uh, particularly kind of that end moment in, in the Liberty game after the, uh, the, the timeout during the blocked field goal and, you know, not not recognizing that hey, if they get another eight to ten yards, they're in makeable field goal range, and not you know a wing and a prayer, and, and just there were there were little moments like that throughout the year that just it was, they were head scratchers. So hopefully, some more of this seasoning and actually, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like Jay Ham wanted to you know simplify some of the concepts that he was trying to put in last year. Some of that probably is is a little bit of trial and error and some of it was just okay well i've, I've actually got time to refine what i want to do here and, and kind of get back to the nuts and bolts of, of what this defense did well last year we we, we read uh you know pixie previews the, the the 2021 you know you say that there's some enough bright spots on the roster uh to put us as put the virginia tech Hokies as the clear cut number three in the coastal um, but you said that there's a gap between us and UNC and Miami, which kind of makes sense based on their roster makeup and things like that. What catalyst, if any, could allow Virginia Tech to capture the Coastal in 2021? I think a, a legitimate passing attack would be nice to get to get going. Um, you know, you want to see that. You want to see a more balanced attack. But really the defense, I think the defense is the number one concern right now, uh, just given all that yardage up last year and points and um, just think of the old Virginia, Virginia Tech teams that were competitive, winning 10 games, making uh, orange bowls. It was it was de always defense first. And I think I put this in the book, too, where if you could have paired the 2020 rushing attack with some of those great Bud Foster defenses, you're talking conference championship. But uh, timing's everything, and it kind of just, you know, it just so happened to align with a weaker defense. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with what I wrote, that there are bright spots here. So speaking to the defense specifically, guys like, uh, Jermaine Waller, I mean, he and Farley were the best corner, one of the best corner duos in America in 19, and you had Farley opt out and Waller was banged up. So you get Waller back. Dorian Strong was a bright spot as a true freshman, so that might be your next duo there. You also add in a two-year SEC starter with Ty Daly at safety, uh, a two-year starter there transferring in. Um, and then another thing is, uh, you know, some some guys were playing a little bit out of position, I think. I read so. Uh, getting Dax Hollyfield to move back inside, more of a natural fit 
uh, for what he was recruited towards. So little adjustments like that, little tweaks, and then a whole year extra in this new scheme and new coordinator. Um, that might be enough to, to flip some of these game results because it was very odd. Uh, I've been doing this 10 years to see Virginia Tech not with a winning record and not in a bowl game. Uh, I know that's you know repetitive for you guys to hear. You, you've probably <laughs> talked about it for eight months. But uh, you know from a, from a national scope, you just always pencil in Virginia Tech for eight wins. That's just a given every year. So you want to yeah. start to get back to that. You want to start to be handling the, the in-state teams and some of the teams below you in the, in the coastal. So, uh, you know, building blocks, baby steps first, but uh, you got to get back to the bowl season. Yeah, this is the first season that uh, Virginia Tech hasn't gotten that kind of courtesy AP top 25 vote. Um, even if we don't end up making the, the, the 25, we weren't in that others receiving vote category. So definitely the uh, s- some of the luster rubbed off last year, and hopefully they can recapture some, some of the, the magic we're used to this year. Absolutely, Brian and, and and Brett. Thank you for you know everything tonight. And but as far as Virginia Tech goes, the one question I have, and you talk about the passing attack, but can they now since they've settled on Braxton Burmeister, super athletic guy? I don't know if you saw this the other day. Had a mile per hour of like twenty two point eight, so obviously speedy. You want to see the passing attack, but obviously. With the elements of Burmeister running, is that one of the biggest keys to you know elevating the passing attack? Don't there's no way they can bring it back to seven point seven yards per carry like you know Herbert last year. But if they find between Jalen Holston, Keyshawn King, and the variety of running backs and attacks, averaging six per carry, is that better ways with a guy who's now been in a system multiple years to actually elevate that attack? I could see it, um, and and specifically with Justin Fuente here, for years he, he couldn't have a, there was no returning starter at quarterback. It was always a one year guy or a half season guy. So mm-hmm. I remember I remember being excited coming into 2019 to have Ryan Willis, uh, what we thought was a second year starter, and when that didn't pan out, it was Hendon Hooker, and I thought last year okay this will be a second year starter, and that didn't pan out. So I want somebody to go through a full you know second season and just see the the kind of gains that can be made now. Uh, speaking to his, his athleticism at quarterback, I wonder if Fuente gets back to some of his old roots, that old quarterback veer that he used to run at TCU on those uh, successful you know, uh, Rose Bowl wins and, and undefeated seasons when they were still in the Mountain West. So, yeah, you want to use some quarterback run, get him involved if he's that quick because that brings uh, – that'll, you know, that'll draw attention from the secondary and pack more guys into the box, a.k.a. open up some lanes on the outsides. Because that might be a relative strength as you have your top three receivers back, Robinson and Turner and, and obviously James Mitchell over the middle. So, um, yeah, so play to that advantage. We'll see. I mean, I, I wrote this. I said it. There's a lot to like. There's bright spots everywhere. It's just, um, you know, with a norm, more normal season, I'm excited to see the gains they make. Awesome. Well, Brett, we, again, really appreciate your time here tonight. Um, well, before we wrap up, uh, Brett, you know, go ahead and give your Twitter account, website, where people can go purchase this. And Hokie fans, the Boundary Corner is stomping or on the stump for this. Buy this preview guide. It is well worth the money spent. Yeah, well, thanks for the praise. Thanks for purchasing. And, and of course, thanks for having me on. It's been great connecting with so many Virginia Tech uh, fans on Twitter, followers, and other podcast shows. It's a lot of uh, great media down there. Um, so I appreciate the work you guys do. And, um, so, yeah, it's pick6previews.com, 
And on there, I have a couple sample pages so you can see what we're talking about with the level of detail, uh, the, you know, the infographics on the left side, my trends, my data, but then the readable storylines on the right side of the page and uh, a really deeper dive than you're going to find anywhere else. Um, so sample pages, testimonials are up there. I just got a huge one from ESPN's Chris Falica, the bear. The uh, bear. So that was, a, that was bear. a great one there. Yes, it um, so yeah, it's up there on pick6previews.com. And then uh, on Twitter, if you're a Twitter follower, it's at pick6previews, all spelled out. And uh, you'll get fresh content every day there. Awesome. Well, Brett, best of luck this season. Hopefully, you know, definitely this time next year, we want to have you back on for another preview. Maybe we catch up with you after the season and we can sort of do some deep diving of, you know, as your statistics and as your models looked, you know, what came to fruition, what was different. So, you know, we'll definitely be connecting with you, hopefully have you back on sometime in the off season. Yeah, for sure, guys. Anytime and keep up the great work. We'll be in touch on Twitter. Appreciate it. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website at BoundaryCornerVT.com to listen to all of our episodes. While you're there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe on your on our YouTube account and your favorite podcast source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. If you are looking to join the Hokie Club and help achieve the Reach for Excellence campaign, please visit BoundaryCornerVT.com forward slash giving to get started. As always, we let our buddy Jason Long from down in the New River Valley play us out. Catch him on Spotify and Apple Music. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go. Hokies.